Well, good morning, friends. Feels a bit weird to uh, take this microphone, take the uh, mask off after having it on here for the last few weeks, but um, I'm going to read the Bible to us. It's Malachi 2, uh, 17 to 3, 18. You've wearied the Lord with your words. How have, you weary, how have we wearied him, you ask? We ask, you ask. <laughs> By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or well, where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they will get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, because those who serve God and those who do not. Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be together again uh, around God's Word. Uh, what has been, uh, I think, a very uh, challenging uh, part of the Scriptures in the book of Malachi. I always find that as I read Malachi and I, I get to self-examine and to consider different aspects of my life and... Uh, no doubt there are times where I've had to trust an unchanging God. I've had to, despite difficulties and stresses, I've had to put my faith in a God who is firm and strong and faithful, who has a covenant love towards me. And so, so thinking this morning, if you have your Bibles, you should have your Bibles and so you can follow uh, what we're, we're doing this morning, Malachi 2.17 through to 3.18. But a big question, as David has raised it earlier in his testimony, is where is the God of justice? And maybe you've asked that question. You know, millions died under the evil and brutality of Hitler in Germany, Chairman Mao in China, Pol Pot in Cambodia, Stalin in Russia, Idi Amin in Uganda, almost a million Hutus and Tutsis uh, slaughtered one another in Rwanda. We see uh, continuing injustice in Yemen, 
um, with great suffering there. We see the, uh, the Taliban uh, running riots again in Afghanistan. Uh, we see Christians arrested or, or simply killed rather than arrested in places like Burkina Faso and Nigeria by Islamic militants. We see pastors killed, churches and whole villages burnt to the ground. We saw in a military, military coup in Myanmar earlier this year uh, the fact that many have died. As of the 12th of April, something like 707 civilians, including children, have been killed by the military or police forces. Over 3,000 detained, and it continues to be a place of suffering and injustice. Well, friends, uh, and you can list many other places. Injustice is frustrating. It's more than that. At times, it seems unbearable. Why does it go on? Will the perpetrators of evil ever be brought to justice? Will the cycle of oppression ever be broken? You see, the Israelites in Malachi's day, and we've seen uh, that they have been complaining all the way along, and God has been uh, rebuking them and refining them and calling them to holiness and to obedience uh, in, in the worship and in the family life. But after they returned from Babylon, after the exile, they felt a little bit let down. You see, they returned back to Jerusalem with great and high hopes. But frustrated by poverty, famine, injustice and oppression. And so the people of Judah were weary. They were tired of it all. I guess we're a bit weary in the middle of COVID. We're tired with it all. They were weary and they complained to God. God, where are you? What are you doing? I thought you meant to bless us. Why are we suffering like this? God, you don't seem to be interested in us. And so we notice that uh, Malachi answers their complaints under three points. The first one is God just. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, they ask? By saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? Well, firstly, let's... Uh, Pick this up, God is tired and weary of their complaints. They keep complaining, oh, well, God, you're not really good because you seem to bless the evil people and not us. You seem to be pleased with evil. Rather than punishing evil, God, where are you? Where is the God of justice? See, be aware that the charges against God are monstrous as well as wrong. Because we know from the Scriptures that God delighted in people keeping his law, Isaiah 56, verse 4. Seeing mercy and the knowledge of God, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. God is concerned with acts of justice and gracious love and humility, Micah 6, verse 8. He's concerned for truth in Psalm 51, verse 8. But you see, Malachi's ungodly and mean-spirited audience insulted God. They said, in effect, God must love wicked people since he puts up with so many of them and blesses them. Now, that's a strong accusation against God, isn't it? Irritated that God had not shown them favor with material prosperity and influence and benefits. Self-righteously, they were saying to themselves, how dare God withhold those blessings from us? It's the wicked people he ought to be judging, not us. Who does he think he is? This God. And with a hint of sarcasm, 
they've summarized their case. Where is the God of justice? See, they didn't have the faith to see that a loving God was seeking to bring them to repentance through their troubles. You see, they were unholy, they were ungodly in, in worship and in their family life. God has called them to account. And rather than seeing suffering as a way in which God is using to bring them to repentance and faith, they simply complain. In fact, they are vicious towards God and what they have to say. So what's God's response here? Well, God didn't respond the way they were expecting. You want justice, he says? You want justice, really? Let me tell you what will happen. The Lord will come suddenly to his temple, he says. Chapter 3, verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Well, the Lord's coming, he says to them. You want God to do something? The Lord is coming, but he's not coming to judge others. He's coming to judge his people first. He's coming for you. He's coming to purify and restore the true worship of God. His work will then mean that people will bring true offerings in righteousness. God is going to come in judgment and refinement, he says. But who can endure the day of his coming? Do you really want God to come, God says? Okay, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. It's going to do some cleaning. It's going to do some refining. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. You guys need a transformation. You need help. I'm coming to work on you. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone, as in former years. You want God to come? He says, I'm coming. I read recently of a group of women studying the book of Malachi in the Old Testament. And uh, they came across this expression. They were in chapter 3, as we are this morning. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. They were quite sure, what does it mean that this Lord will be sit like a refiner and purifier of silver? So one of the women decided to go and do some research. She called up a silversmith and made an appointment to watch him work. As she watched the silversmith, he held a piece of silver over a fire and let it heat up. He explained that in refining silver, one needed to hold the silver in the middle of the fire where the flames were hottest as to burn away all the impurities, right? We're going to get rid of the impurities, just be left with that silver. And the woman thought about God holding us in such a spot. She thought again about this verse that he sits as a refiner and purifier of silver. She asked the silversmith if it was true that he had to sit there in front of the fire the whole time the silver was being refined. The man answered yes and explained that he had not only to sit there holding the silver, but he had to keep his eyes on the silver the entire time it was in the fire. If the silver was left even for a moment too long in the flames, it would be damaged. So here's the silver smith. He's holding it. He's watching it. He's seeing the refining taking place on his silver. The woman was silent for a moment. Then she asked, 
How do you know when the silver is fully refined? How do you know when the job's done? And he smiled at her and said, Oh, that's easy. When I see my image in it. When I see my image in it. Friends, God works in us to make us like him so God can see his image in us. That we become like our God. We become like our Savior Jesus. God works in us so we reflect his character, reflect his goodness, reflect his holiness. Gets rid of the garbage and makes us like Jesus. Friends, when God comes, he will deal with all types of evil, he says to the people of Malachi's days. He doesn't work according to our schedule, but he will balance the scales of justice. So I will come near to put you in trial. I will be quick to testify against your sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord. God says, I'm coming in judgment. Social action, so we debate about social action versus the gospel. They come together. God is concerned with how we treat the poor and the oppressed, the widow, the orphan. He wants to know that we are acting rightly. But see, these are the sins perpetrated in Israel. God had chosen Israel and entered into a covenant with them that they might be a holy nation, be an example to the Gentiles, that the Gentiles would see God in them. But they repulsed the Gentiles because they did not live rightly before God. And then he says the messenger is going to send a messenger. The messenger that God would send to prepare the way, we know, was John the Baptist. Uh, Matthew eleven fourteen, Luke 1, 17. He would call men and women to repent. Now, we'll spend more time on that next week. But he would prepare the way for the Lord to come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant. So that day is coming, he says. John the Baptist will prepare the way for the messenger who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in time, God did indeed come to his temple in his son Jesus to purify the people and the worship of God. In fact, two weeks ago, I preached on John chapter 2, where in fact Jesus goes into the temple and cleans the temple drives out out the money changers, drives out the animals. And he says he'll come to destroy that temple. He came with a great purging and refining and purifying and renewing of the worship of God. Jesus was like the launderer, cleaning them up. He was like the refiner of silver and gold, coming to get rid of the dirt and the dross in a process of cleansing. And did he not come down hard? Did Jesus not come down hard on the Pharisees and the religious people who pretended to be holy, but inside they were evil. Malachi's readers wanted God to come and do the right thing. Well, Malachi says there will come a day when he will, and Jesus has come. He rebuked the Pharisees, he cleansed the temple, he prophesied its destruction, and he replaced it with his own death and resurrection being himself the perfect sacrifice for sins for all time. You don't need to bring the animals any longer. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, is God just? You bet he is. Will God come in judgment? You bet he will. And he'll start with you, the Word of God says, 
So you'd better repent and be ready. For God is weary with your words. Secondly, is God faithful? Yes, God is faithful. See, Malachi says, you weary God with your self-righteous and cynical remarks and you question God's love for you. The only reason you're alive today, Malachi says, is because of God's covenant love. Verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. In chapter 1, verses 2 to 5 in Malachi, God reminded them that he loved them, that he chose them, that they are his special possession. And they are questioning that love. So guys, the only reason you're alive, the only reason I haven't destroyed you is because I've made a sovereign choice to love you and to work through you for the glory of my name. But the nation has been unfaithful. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Friends, God is a God who is willing to forgive repentant people. God has remained the same. Malachi is saying, it is you who have changed. It is you who have moved from God. It is you who needs to come back in repentance. We often use this expression, if God seems distant... Guess who moved? If God seems distant, guess who moved? You see, God is solid in his love. God is solid in his sovereignty. God is solid in being a refuge in our strength. But when we struggle and we have questions, we wander away from God. And we wonder where God is. The very times we need to draw near to God, we move away from God and say, God is not here. God has not answered my prayer. I love the story of the prodigal son. You know, that son who asked for his father for his inheritance from his father before his father had died, insulting his father, in fact saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Can I have my money? And the father gives him the money. The son runs away. He, he spends all his money in wild living, the Bible says. He ended up in a pigsty. He lost all his friends. When his money went, he had no more friends. He ends up in a pigsty and he thinks, wow, even the servants and the slaves in my father's house have more than this. I will go back and say, sorry, maybe my father will make me like one of his hired servants. But you see, the father was always at the house. The father was always looking out for that son who chose to walk away from God. And when the son came home, can you imagine the father? Day after day, he's looking for the return of his son. He's watching for the return of his son. He's watching with his heart breaking for the return of his son. And one day he looks out and he says, I think it's my son. He looks like, I think it's him. I think it's him. He doesn't look as pretty as what he used to look like. He looks a bit of a mess, but I think it's my son. And what does the Bible say? While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. If God seems distant, guess who moved? The Father, the God of the universe, loves you. And if you've moved from him, come back to him, return to him. God then throws a great party for his son. There's celebration and music and dancing because a lost son has returned home. Friends, that's what God is like. That's what Malachi is reminding the people in his day. But Israel didn't get it. Who, us? We need to repent. 
Why do we need to repent? Why do we need to turn back to God? We never went away. We never did anything. We've been here the whole time. Well, they are guilty of robbery, God says. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. See, the tithe or the tenth of, of what a person earned went to support the priests and the Levites. That was part of the deal for God's people. A tithe or a tenth of what you earned went to support the priests and the Levites. Others who benefit from the tithe included the widows, the orphans, and the resident aliens, Deuteronomy 14. And the offerings were different to tithes. They were those portions of the animal sacrifices designated for the priests as well. Or those gifts that were voluntarily given for some special purpose. We see that in Exodus 25. God says, you have been withholding those, and therefore you have been robbing God. Well, how do we rob God today? Well, we may rob God financially. We are not governed, let me say, by the Old Testament law of the tithe. In my understanding of the Scriptures, and uh, many people's understanding of the Scriptures, that's an Old Testament principle. But the principle of generosity and cheerfulness and sacrificial giving is part of the New Testament principle. We want to be involved by giving financially to support the work of the gospel. And what we give our money to is a sign of where our commitment is. Do we spend, spend our money simply on ourselves or do we see it as a gift from God to be used for His purposes? For the work of the local church, for the work of mission, for the provision of Bibles to those who don't have them, to care for the poor, the orphan and the widow. Well, friends, let me say I'm so thankful to God for this church, for you. Because over many years we have given and we have supported and we've done ministry locally and globally for the glory of Jesus. And I've seen you give to things like uh, sponsoring children through Baptist World Aid or Compassion. We've seen you put packages together for Operation Christmas Child. You've given money to support Bibles for the persecuted amongst other people and situations that you support. Generosity. But see, the people in Malachi's day did not do that. But further, we might withhold our life from God's service. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And God's not just interested in your money. When you're talking to the Malachi, tithes is one of the things they're robbing God with, and the rest of their lives. You see, we need to surrender to God, give our whole lives to Him. Are you robbing God of your time? We can rob God of our time. Time that should be given in, in personal prayer and in worship. Time given to help our families praise and worship Jesus. Time given to serve the needs of the local church or time given to take the gospel to others. Are we robbing God of our time? Are we using it for other things? Are you robbing God of your spiritual gifts? Whatever it happens to be. God has granted you gifts by His Spirit and you're just not using them? Or are you robbing God of your heart? You might follow the rules and regulations, but you don't delight in God, you don't rejoice in God. And maybe this COVID time has made it harder for you, or maybe you've drawn closer to God during this time. 
You realize there's nothing else. You have to depend upon God. You cannot depend on health departments or governments. They'll do their best, we hope, most of the time. They're human like the rest of us. But do you delight in God? Do you trust in God? Do you enjoy being with God? Are you robbing God of your heart? Don't just go through the motions. Don't rob God of your heart. God will bless, he says, to the uh, Israelites' wholehearted obedience, verses 3, or chapter 3, 10 to 12. He says, he will bless you with abundance if you do the right thing. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room to store it. God says, do what I've asked you to do, and I will bless you. And then you'll be blessed with protection, he says in verse 11. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. And they'll be blessed with reputation. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord God Almighty. God says, return to me. Do what I've asked you to do. Stop robbing me, and I'll bring blessing upon you. Return to me, and I will return to you. Maybe COVID-19 has thrown you out. Each week, there's another story. Each, each second day, almost, there's another restriction. And you ask, where is God in all of this? Well, God hasn't moved. God hasn't moved. And if you've been moving, attempting to move away from trusting in God, come home today. Trust Him. Finally, is it vain to serve the Lord? See, the wicked complain again. They keep going. There's no, no end to their complaints. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the, to the test, they get away with it. They're saying, What's, why do we bother following God? Why do we bother in the modern language following Jesus? It's no better than anyone else. You might as well be a non-Christian. They seem to have more fun. You might as well be a non-Christian. They seem to have more money. You might as well be a non-Christian. They seem happier. What's the use? Friends, we must confess at times it's even difficult for us. Although we know this truth, Romans 8, 28 and 29, it's hard. We know it in our heads, but sometimes it's not in our hearts. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. That's true. You've got to hold on to that. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God works for the good of those who love him in all circumstances, in all situations to make us more like Jesus, right? That's the point. God is working in all situations to make us like Jesus. But we struggle humanly to cope with the physical and emotional pain involved. COVID-19, lockdown, cancer, loneliness, job loss, marriage breakdown, and so on. So we pray humbly and honestly to God who himself understands for he himself is a suffering God. Friends, come to him. 
There's a father who punishes his son. There's a son who sacrifices his life for us that we would find hope and forgiveness. And ultimately, we rest at the foot of the cross. We started with that in the book of Malachi. I think we rest at the foot of the cross. I was reading a book called Disappointment with God by Philip Yancey. And what Philip Yancey did was just visited many people and um, just found out how they were coping with all the suffering in their lives. He found people who were disappointed, a bit like Malachi's readers. And he ended up going to a guy that he called a modern-day Job. And uh, he says Douglas was his name. Let me tell you his story. Douglas seemed righteous in the same sense as Job. He wasn't perfect, but he was a lovely, godly man. So Douglas's troubles began some years ago when his wife discovered a lump in her breast. Surgeons removed that breast, but two years later, the cancer had spread to her lungs. Douglas took over many household and parental duties as his wife battled the debilitating effects of chemotherapy. Sometimes she couldn't hold down any food. She lost her hair. She always felt tired and vulnerable to fear and depression. One night in the midst of this crisis, as Douglas was driving down a city street with his wife and 12-year-old daughter, a drunk driver swerved across the center line, smashed head on into their car. Douglas' wife was badly shaken but unhurt. His daughter suffered a broken arm and severe facial cuts from the windshield glass. Douglas, though, received the worst injury, a massive blow to the head. After the accident, Douglas never knew when a headache would come. He could not work a full day. Sometimes he would become disorientated and forgetful. The worst thing was, this affected his vision. One eye wandered at will, refusing to focus. He developed double vision and could hardly walk down a flight of stairs without assistance. He learned to cope with his disabilities, but one, he could not read, he says, then a page or two at a time. He loved books, he loved to read, but he couldn't do it. So when I called Douglas to ask for an interview, he suggested meeting over breakfast, and when the scheduled time came, I braced myself for a difficult morning. I've been interviewing, he says, all these people who had suffered uh, by, uh, or, and had, were disappointed, disappointed in God. If anyone has a right to be angry at God, Douglas did. Just that week, his wife had gotten a dismaying report from the hospital. There was another spot on her lung. As we began to talk, uh, I said, can you tell me about your disappointments? What have you learned that might help someone else going through a difficult time? And Douglas was silent. And uh, he didn't know whether he was having a, a, a bit of a, a struggle just getting the words out, uh, whether he understood the question. But then he said, no, no. I tell you the truth, Philip. I didn't feel any disappointment with God. Philip began to go, what? I didn't feel any disappointment with God. Philip says, I was startled by his answer because everywhere I've been, everyone's disappointed with God. The reason is this. I learned first through my wife's illness and then especially through the accident not to confuse God with life. I'm no stoic. I'm as upset about what happened to me as anyone could be. I feel free to curse the unfairness of life and to vent all my grief and anger, but I believe God feels the same way about that accident. Grieved and angry. I don't blame him for what happened. So I've learned to see beyond the physical reality in this world 
to the spiritual reality. We tend to think life should be fair because God is fair, but God is not life. And if I confuse God with the physical reality of life by expecting constant good health, for example, then I set myself up for a crashing disappointment. So he understands, this man, Douglas, understands that we live in a fallen, broken world, and all of us are impacted by mortality. God's existence, even his love for me, does not depend on my good health. Frankly, I've had more time and opportunity to work on my relationship with God during my impairment than before. He goes on, if we develop a relationship with God apart from our life circumstances, then we may be able to hang on when the physical reality breaks down. We can learn to trust God despite all the unfairness of life. Isn't that really the main point of Job? He says, I challenge you further down. He says, to go home and read again the story of Jesus. Was life fair to him? For me, the cross demolished for all time the basic assumption that life will be fair. So we started discussing Job, ended up discussing Jesus. And the pattern stayed with me. In the Old Testament, one of God's Favorites suffered terrible unfairness, and in the New Testament, God's own son suffered even more. It says, God responded to the question of fairness, not with words, but with a visit and incarnation. And Jesus offers flesh and blood proof of how God feels about unfairness. For he took on the stuff of life, the physical reality at its unfairest. He gave, in summary, a final answer to all lurking questions about the goodness of God. He writes, it occurred to me as I read the Gospels that if all of us in his body would spend our lives as he did, ministering to the sick, feeding the hungry, resisting the powers of evil, comforting those who mourn, and bringing the good news of love and forgiveness, then perhaps the question, is God unfair, would not be asked with such urgency today. Friends, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So we are men and women who look in light of eternity. We have our eyes focused on on the, the coming again of Jesus, where all things will be made right. On this earth there is injustice. On this earth there is unfairness. On this earth there is suffering. But Christ has made possible eternal life. You see, the people of Malachi's day were faithless. They arrogantly pointed the finger at God, even though they were a spiritual disaster. Their heart was not in their worship. They offered blemished sacrifices. They were hypocritical. They robbed God by not giving him their full tithe. They divorced their wives. They intermarried with pagans. And they spoke harshly against their God. How miserable it all was. But then... When I was reading my text this week, I got to verse 16 to 18. And all of a sudden, there's a glimmer of hope. All of a sudden, there's another group in the nation. They're not all complaining. They're, all not, all, they're not all whinging. There's another group. Almost like a, a side point here. There's the righteous who fear the Lord. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scholar of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. Good news. There's a group in Israel who don't mock God. It's a group who do not pour scorn on God's name. They're a group of people who have a different attitude. The believing community, the remnants, the group within the larger nation that is faithful to God. And on that day when I access the Lord Almighty, 
they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as the Father has compassion and spares his Son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Friends, when God comes to carry out his plan for judgment and salvation, the believing community will be cared for. God will spare the righteous believers. His punishment will fall on the wicked. There will be a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, and that will be very clear. And that will end up end any verbal abuse against heaven. Friends, God is just. God is faithful. It is not vain to serve the Lord. Just look at the cross. Just gaze at the empty tomb and keep one eye on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to get all things in perspective. May God help us trust God in the midst of of difficulty. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are faithful, that you are just, that it is not vain to serve you, but there is great joy and great delight in trusting you, in loving you, and in serving you, and in surrendering completely to you. Help us not to be like Malachi's audience. Help us not to be complainers and whingers and accusers. Help us not to run from you, but to return to you, and to trust in you. Through our difficulties, through our disappointments, that we will trust that you are working in all things for the good of your people, for the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.